Welcome to the Living Faith Missionary Church Podcast. You're about to listen to a message from Pastor Chris Starn, Senior Pastor at Living Faith in Yoder, Indiana. It is our prayer that this message is an encouragement and a blessing to your life. If you open your Bibles, we are in Isaiah 40. You know, last week we examined uh, the prophecy that was given to Hezekiah about the future of Judah. And I don't know about you, but many times when we when we look at the prophecy, when we go to Revelation or we're in the Old Testament and we're looking at the prophecy, the, the tendency is to get mm, a little apprehensive, might be a good word to use, about what's coming. Because the prophecies, prophecies don't always paint a pretty picture. Because God is having to deal with some pretty serious things. He's having to deal with sin. And while he promises to take care of us in our time of need, he promises that we are obviously going to be, be, be taken care of. It's not a problem. We do, we do care about things and we know that what is coming. We know that there's not always good news coming. But it was kind of interesting. I don't know about you, but I, I did find it interesting how Hezekiah responded. And his response to the prophecy about his sons and about the future of Judah kind of surprised us and surprised me. But you can imagine that there might have been some other people in the room who might also have heard it. We don't know that Isaiah came to him in a a private place. Chances are he's the king he would have had of court. There would have been people all around him. So it's very likely that more than just Hezekiah heard these words from Isaiah. And if they heard it, and and they heard what the king said, I, I, I can't imagine that many of them went home and when their spouses said, or wives said, so what happened in the king's court today? They said, oh, nothing. I mean, I imagine they would have talked about what was going to happen to Judah, even though it was far off. And then you can imagine the feeling of dread and despair that could have spread throughout all of Jerusalem. It could also be that what we read about in Isaiah 40 is not meant for the people of Isaiah's day. There's some thought that this is the Isaiah 40 is the beginning of a new book, actually. So this may have nothing to do with the prophecy of, of, of Hez, for Hezekiah and for the future of his family. We don't know. But it may very well have been meant to encourage those who are in exile. Over 100 years from the events of Isaiah 39, they'll go into exile. And I'm, you know, we haven't really experienced that. We've never experienced that where you're taken from your place where your family has lived and you are moved by force someplace that is so far away. I mean, we're talking about they went from, from Israel all the way to the other side of the Fertile Crescent, which is over, would have been over around Iran. They're far from Judah, far from where God had wanted them. Which is interesting to think about it that way because I think sometimes we get far from where God wants us. We find ourselves in spiritual exile. It would have been a very bitter exile. They were defeated. They would become disillusioned. 
Many probably would have gone so far as to even blame God for their exile. We do that today. I hear people all the time. Well, Pastor, I need, I need prayer for this person because they're angry because of what's going on in their life, and they're blaming God. Or we have this friend who has a, you know, has a, a, a sister whose you know, husband died, and she's blaming God. And we all go through that. At some time in our lives, we're going to have a, a moment of crisis, a moment of, of crisis of faith. Well, we'll, we'll make a choice. Do we, do we continue to believe what we've been taught, what we know is true? And do we follow God, or do we turn from him? And, and if you've, you've read anything of the culture going on around us, it's, it's very common for a lot, of, a lot of Christians to actually have that crisis of faith and turn from God. This is what humanity usually does. We blame God. The amazing thing is, is God doesn't respond in kind. He doesn't blame us. He knows what the cause is. The cause is the fall of humanity. The cause is the evil one. And he's going to have to deal with that. And he will deal with that. If we could just get to the point where we realize how far we've fallen and how broken this world is. And when disappointment has seems to pervade our lives and is so persistent that everything, the, the, actual, the actual feeling of disappointment is so strong as we think it's real that our hope begins to wane. And, but the problem is it begins to look like foolishness. It's foolish. How can we fall so far from a great God? We know who he is. We know what he's done. We know what he's going to do. And yet, in the midst of that, we still struggle. When humanity lets us down, which, as I keep saying, it will, and we've lost all hope, it's at that time, maybe, just maybe, we're finally ready for the only real salvation that exists. Now, whether these words were intended for the people of Isaiah's time in Jerusalem, as they looked forward to when the children would go into captivity, or, and obviously would one day return, or it's meant for the people in captivity to bring them hope, to persevere until the time when they're going to return, because they're given a prophecy later, we'll find later in in Scripture, if you, if you know anything about it, there's, there's a prophecy that Darius would, would sign a decree and they'd be able to return. Or if it's meant for us today, as we face a world that's continually broken and continuing to be worse and worse, increasingly broken, as we wait for the return of Christ, it's really inconsequential because it covers all three. And I would argue that these words in their own unique way, do that. So let's go to Isaiah 40. It's a definite change from where we were. We will not necessarily be focusing on Hezekiah anymore. So that's why most some people believe it was either written as a, as a later book or it was written by somebody else. And for me, it doesn't matter. It's still God's word. This is what it says in verses 1 and 2. It says, Comfort. Comfort for my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for her sins. 
God is instructing Isaiah to, to speak tender words to Jerusalem. Now you, you can imagine in, in all those circumstances, whether it is, it is people who've, who have heard what's going to happen in the future and they're feeling the dread of it, or there are people that are in captivity and they're feeling the weight of it, or you and I in our daily lives who, who feel the world pressing down upon us, these words are meant to bring us comfort. Tender words. The future looks bad for Jerusalem. The future seems bad for the captives. The future looks bad for this world. Go to Revelation. You'll see the things that are going to occur. But one day, the war will be over. And I don't just mean the war in you know, Ukraine. All war. The war between that we've talked about from the the fact that there's a war between between God and Satan, between evil and good. There's a war between between God and and the fallen sons of God. There's this war that's constantly going on around us. There's a battle for our hearts. You know, we are the we're in the midst of it. We didn't sign up for this war. But as being born, that's we're part of this battle. Bible is a plan, is, is, is very plain that apart from Christ, each of us are at war with God. If, if, if we are not in Christ, if we are not believers, we are actually adversaries of Yahweh. We are at war with Him. Unbelievers may not even realize that they're at war with, with God. You know, there may be people out there who, who, who consider themselves good, which we know there's no one who's good. Except for God. Oh, that's a, that's a, that's a good person. No, they're not. They're, they're at, if they don't know Christ, and in reality, I'll be honest with you, even if they do know Christ, and they're not living the lives they're supposed to, if they're not living like Christ, they are pushing back against God, and they're at war with Him. We know. We know how it goes in families, right? How many of you have brothers and sisters? And you... You never fought with them, right? You never had disagreements with them? You never disagreed with your parents? The parents disagree with the children? There's battles within, even within the family, against God. It's that struggle that Paul talks about. What I want to do, I don't want to do. What I I want to do, I can't do. What What I don't want to do, I do. What is it? It's not me. It's the sin living inside of me. That's that struggle, that battle. It's a, it's a huge war. Those who deny Christ are living with the wrath of God, waiting for them one day. It's They may not believe it. I always tell people, they say, well, I don't believe in God. Well, you know, it doesn't really matter what you believe, because God is God and God is real. It's like people ask me, well, what, what do you believe about homosexuality? I say, it doesn't matter what I believe about homosexuality. It matters what God believes about homosexuality and what he says. I'll tell you what I believe, what I believe the Bible says, but that's his word. He says the same thing about lying. He says the same thing about disrespecting your parents. They're all sin. And where does it go to? Sin leads to death. Doesn't matter what the sin is. Apart from Christ, we are all under the judgment of God. God is at war with us because of his holiness and because of our sin. And we as sinners, what have we done? We've violated God's law. 
And when we violate his law, we violate his character. I don't know about you. You can say, oh, you want about me, but you start talking about my character, I've got a problem. Unless my character is really, really bad, then I have a problem. But God's character is perfect. We have been reconciled, though, through the Holy Spirit, through the death of Christ on the cross to God. We're now in a good relationship with him. I mean, if there's anything that should bring us comfort, we know this war is going on around us. What should bring us comfort, the words of comfort are is, you're my child. I love you. I died for you. I died for you. We're reconciled now. You are now in a relationship with Yahweh. Those are words of comfort. Isaiah says that Jerusalem has received double. It's interesting that he says they've received double all their sins. And this is a very, very vital, very important statement to think about. Because Jerusalem's going to go into exile. But understand that that exile does not provide for their salvation. Just because, I mean, it's the punishment, but it's not, it doesn't bring them salvation. It doesn't bring them to being saved. We know there's only one way to be saved. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. That's it. You could be, you can claim yourself as good as you wanted to be. You can do as many things that are good that you think that you should be doing. And believe me, we need to do good things, but not to gain salvation, but because of our salvation, we do good works. It says, and this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And you may be saying, yeah, pastor, that's New Testament. What about the Old Testament? Well, let's go to Lamentations. Lamentations? Where's that at? Most people don't know where Lamentations is. Lamentations 3, 25 says, For God, the Lord, is good to those who wait for him and to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for what? For the salvation of the Lord. See, even in the Old Testament, salvation did not come by what they did by following the law. Salvation only comes as a gift from God, from from the time of the fall of Adam and Eve to the end. That's the only way the salvation comes. There's nothing you and I can do for our salvation. Nothing. It comes from Yahweh through Jesus Christ. If we attain, if we attempt to attain our own salvation through works, it's only going to make it worse. Because what will happen? We make an idol of those works. It doesn't work that way. Now, I don't know about you, but probably the people, I think the people in Jerusalem, when they were in exile, probably thought their punishment was pretty bad. Isn't that the way it goes? You know, when we're kids and we get punished, our parents, send, um, you know, they punish us. We think it's the most terrible thing in the world. Terrible. Oh, my gosh, you won't believe what my parents, how my parents punished me. They grounded me for a week, you know. They thought it was pretty bad. We have a tendency to underestimate, though, the, the result of our sins. And sometimes we feel the ramifications of our sins are, are far greater than we expect or the feel that we deserve. But see, the, the truth of the matter is, according to Scripture, we deserve much more, much worse than what we get. Romans 6, Paul says, for the wages of sin is what? What's the wages of sin? Hello? What? Death. 
death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Death is what we deserve. What, what Jerusalem is going to suffer, I mean, and it's going to be bad. They're going to come in and they're going to, they're going to kill them. They're going to tear the walls down. They're going to burn the temple. They're going to completely tear the temple down. Destruction, captivity. The Babylonians are going to do all of this. But that still is not enough to pay for the generations and generations of turning against God. You could, you could go out and you could give away every dime you have. You can volunteer for every possible thing to help the poor, to help those who need. But if you have not reconciled with God, you are dying in your sin. You cannot do enough. Because what do you deserve if you've sinned? Death. But we have the free gift of Christ because Christ died for us. For generations, the Jews had been following the false gods of the the nations around them. Just as the ramifications of sin that we commit come nowhere close to being double for our sins. We sin, you know, we sin, we hurt people, we do, we say things we shouldn't say, there's things that go, and we, we feel, well, I'm being punished enough for this. No, you're not. If you've sinned, you deserve death. And you need to reconcile with God, and you need to reconcile with the people that you've hurt. It, it doesn't matter. You, you can't sit there and say, well, I've already, I've already dealt with it, I've already beaten myself up. No, it's not enough. Jesus had to die for all of that. These verses are, are, are not just pointing to the time of the Israelites in Jerusalem before or the Israelites during captivity. It points forward to the reality of how much worth there was on the cross. The value of the atonement of Jesus Christ. I'm not so sure we fully understand how valuable that truly was. The blood shed by Jesus Christ on the cross is far greater than what was needed to be reconciled. It's far greater. How can you say that? Well, uh, number one, I believe that Jesus died for everyone's sin. All sin. But but not not everybody is going to be redeemed. So he died for people who will never take advantage of it. He paid a higher price than just for those that are saved. I don't believe in limited atonement. That's, that's, a, that's a Calvinist idea that it was limited atonement. He only died for those who he knew would, be, would accept him. I don't believe that. I believe in unlimited atonement. He died for everybody. Everybody has an opportunity. He paid much more than what it cost, what it should have cost. It far outweighs the weight of our sins. I mean, don't get me wrong, our sins are weighty. We feel the weight of them many times. God is holy and our sins are great, but the atoning work of Jesus Christ is much greater. It's more than, it's double, as it says here, it's double what our sins are. And then we come to a verse that I'm sure many of you are very familiar with, at least I hope you recognize it, in verse 3 of Isaiah 40. So the voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for God. 
See, Isaiah begins to hear these voices say things to him. And it's, it's a good way of hearing voices, by the way. It's not, he's not going crazy. The voice isn't identified. But the message that it brings is meant to bring comfort to God's people. The comfort that God's calling for in verse 1. And there are three things that this voice is going to say that are both, I think, literal and figurative. The first thing he says is the king is coming. He says, prepare the way of the Lord. The king is coming. He comes to us as we are. We need to prepare the way for him, but he comes to us as we are. And where is that? Where are we? We're in a wilderness. Well, what's a wilderness? Well, wilderness is, is a place where there's no growth, a place where there's no water, there's no life. It's a barren place. It's a hostile environment. It's a picture of Judah and Jerusalem who are under the judgment of God for their sins. It's a place where there's nothing happening that needs to happen. It's where this world is going. It's where this, what this world has become. It's becoming a wilderness. Don't, do you see it? I see it all the time. I look at what's going on in Washington, and I'm like, this is not the way God wants it. I look at what's happening in our homes, what the governments are, are, are the attack on the family. That's not the way God wants it. I see how different governments are interacting with each other. That's not what God wants. This is it's becoming a wilderness. And when we when we battle, when we fight all the time, what do we we do? We destroy. And it becomes a wilderness. I don't know if you've ever seen any of the pictures from World War One, especially, and you look at some of the battlegrounds, and it's just like there's nothing. It's it's been completely devastated. That's the world we're living in. And not only does it devastate the landscape, it devastates the people. It's, it's, it's heartbreaking. You and I are, are living in a desert. And while this world could have been like the promised land, it could have been a, a land full of milk and honey. A land where, you know, when, when Adam and Eve, when Adam and Eve are, are created, God says, you know, be fruit before. This is before the fall. He says, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the whole earth. Fill it with people. He, they, were to, they were to take the presence of God, their relationship with God, they were to spread it out around over the whole world, and it was to be a place, Eden was to spread to the ends of the earth. How do we know that? Because we know where God's going. What's he going to do in the end? He's going to bring Eden down from heaven, and we're all, it's going to be heaven on earth again, the new heaven and new earth. With God there with us, sin gone, pain gone, crying gone, everything bad gone. It's going to be the way God intended it to begin with. The world could have been that way, but the adversary, the evil one, is making it into a dead land. And many of us humans are helping him, some willingly, some unwillingly. We're moving more and more towards a wilderness. It may not look like it, but it is. So we are to prepare the way for the Lord. Now we know, if, you, if I say that most of us have heard that term, we've heard these verses, and, and it was partially fulfilled with John the Baptist. John Mark makes a reference to this verse in Isaiah when he's talking about the, the John the Baptist in Mark 1. He says, and it is written, as it is written, Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face 
Who will prepare your way? The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So he's talking about John the Baptist. He says, this is fulfilling that. And Matthew said the same thing in Matthew 3. He says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, if you do any studying of prophecy, if you do any studying of eschatology, which is a study of the end things, You'll understand that God, God, many times there's double meanings to things, meaning that something happens in history and that thing is going to repeat itself because it's cyclical. It's not linear. It's cyclical. So the, the same thing that happened here is going to happen again sometime. There's, it's not going to be identical, but there's, you can see the relation between the two. Why is that? Because humans never change. We are the same today as we were 2,000 years ago. We make the same mistakes, we do the same stupid things, I'll say it, stupid things. <laughs> make the same choices they made back then. So, we know that Isaiah said this, we know that it was partially filled with John, but we know we also have a, we actually we've now have been commissioned to be the ones who are preparing the way for the Lord. For the second coming of Christ. We see that in Matthew 28. Jesus has risen from the dead. He's with his disciples. He's getting ready to leave them. He's going to leave them with a commission, a job. This is what you're supposed to do. He's telling them, prepare the way of the Lord. The Lord, I'm coming back. He says, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. All authority. It is now Jesus' authority. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's the Holy Spirit who's with us. He's saying, I'm going to be with you always to the end of the age. The end of the age is coming, and we know the end of the age is coming. And when it comes, that Jesus will come back. The way of the Lord. You and I are here now to prepare the way of the Lord. Prepare it here in our hearts and prepare it with those around us. That's why we're supposed to share the gospel. That was the first proclamation. The Lord is coming. The second proclamation is in verse 40 of Isaiah, verse 4 of Isaiah 40. It says, Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. This second thing I think that the, that the voices are saying to Isaiah is that, you know, God is going to accomplish his purpose. And if, that's, that's the whole idea of the comfort. You know, we, we like to think we're in control of things, but I always know that most of the time I'm, I have no idea what's going on. I have no control over everything that happens. I wish I did. I wish I, every person I, I encountered in this world, I could control what they think and what they say and what they do. You can't. We can barely even control ourselves. We can't. We have trouble controlling our tongue. We have trouble controlling our thoughts. What makes me think I can control anybody else? But in the midst of that, God is still going to accomplish His purpose. We we might see this as a literal fulfillment in the Book of Revelation. But I'm not so sure that Isaiah is talking literal here. He, he's talking about this. He's not, you know, and we'll get to what it says in, about the, the earth changing when Christ comes back. But I, I think he's also talking about the upheaval that comes into our lives from true repentance. 
I'm talking true True turning to Christ. How does that change your life? What does it do to you? It's like, if it truly is repentant, it's going to change everything. It's going to change how you look at everything. The, the landscape of your life will change. It's going to change the social landscape of your, of your world. If all the friends you had who are not believers, you're still, you could still be friends with them, but believe me, you're not going to want to do the same things you did before. And your, your heart is going to burn for them also to experience Christ. If it doesn't, there's a problem. Maybe your, your repentance wasn't true, wasn't real. I, I don't know. That's something that, again, work out your faith with fear and trembling. Be sure that your, your repentance is true. If it's true, it changes your life. If it doesn't change your life, it may not be true. It's going to turn everything on its head. Pride is going to be flattened out. Pride lifts up, right? So pride is going to be lived flattened out. Troubled personalities are, are made placid. And difficult people will become easy to deal with. I didn't say difficult people will change. What I'm saying is you're going to be able to deal with difficult people better then if you're not a believer, it's not about them changing, it's about you changing. And when these things don't happen, it's more than likely that we're hanging on to the status quo. Everything It's not changing our lives. And I'm speaking from experience. I know. I've gone through this. We refuse this the constructive salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. We, we want to hang on to the, oh, we like the mountains. We like the rolling hills. We like the pride. We, 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 we've learned to love that, you know? But God says, no, can't get rid of it. i got to flatten it. And if we hang on to those things, we, we, risk, we risk the fact that we're not going to have any part in Christ. That's the second proclamation. God's will is going to be accomplished. The third proclamation is in verse 5. It says, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Hmm. The glory of the Lord is going to be revealed to the whole world. We can count on it because why? God says so. God says the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. One day, one day, the day is coming when everyone will see the glory of Christ. They will see Christ and they will bow down and they will call him Lord. I'm not saying that they've surrendered to him. It's that they will have no choice but to see that's Christ. He is Lord. And they will bow their knee and say Jesus Christ is Lord. Even Satan himself will do it. But understand, that doesn't. that's not repentance. They're doing it under duress because he's there. But until that day, understand that the world can see the glory of the Lord today in his church. And, I, and this is the one that really bothers me because I'm not so sure that the church today reflects the glory of the Lord. And I'm not meaning us, I'm meaning the church in general. 
that churches today don't always reflect the glory of God. And that doesn't mean you got to have a huge, you know, you got to have a smoke screen, smoke machines in the big stage and big That's not the glory of God. That's the glory of man. That's not what happens here. It's what happens out there. That's where the glory of the Lord can be seen. It happens in the lives of the church. The church is not this building. The church is you. The glory of the Lord can be seen in your life. When you reflect the salvation that you have received as a free gift from God, not because of what you've done, but because of what he has done. So we, how do we see that? Where do we see the glory? Where can the world see the glory of the Lord in us as church, as people? Well, first of all, in what we say. In Colossians, Paul says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is probably, I, I put this first because this is probably the one that the church struggles with the most, is talking to each other. We don't handle conflict well. And when we do handle conflict, we say things we shouldn't say. (laughs) Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. We're told to tame our tongue, to not say things we shouldn't say. You can think whatever you want to think. I don't care what you think. What you say is what matters. And you can sit and say, well, I didn't, that's not what I meant. No, you, then you need to say what you meant. You can't, you can't, I'm, I'm bad at that. I'll be honest with you. I struggle with that. What do I want to do when somebody says something to me I don't like? I want to respond like that, right? Be slow to speak, quick to hear. That's what we got to do. Because when we do that, when we live according to what God, and what people, what Paul teaches us how to live, we will reflect God's glory to a world that responds that way. I mean, how, if, you live, if you're in the business world, how do people respond? You, you're, you, know, you, you say something they, they don't like, they're going to jump all over you. I love, I love uh, not telling people I'm a pastor. I had a guy come to a house this week and fix something at the house and he's saying a few things and you know he drops a few words and then I start talking about church and then I start talking about somebody he knows at our church and then I say yeah I'm the pastor oh oh sorry pastor <laughs> I was at a store one day down in French Lick and this lady was saying a few things and and I, so I was buying something and uh and she's she she's found out I'm a pastor, and she's like, oh, I'm I guess I shouldn't have said that, should I? I said, listen, you're not gonna say anything that surprises me. I've not been a pastor my whole life. I'm not perfect, you know. You you don't have to say it just because I'm a pastor, you know. Just you you need to say the right things, control the tongue. The church is bad at it, always. It's one of the human things about the church we need to work on more than anything else. And I don't, I don't mean here. I mean the whole church in general. We can also show Christ, the glory of Christ in what we do. 
In the book of James, James tells us, and, and one of you who says to them, go in peace, he's taking my, you know, if you're going to say you're a believer, then you need to live it out. He says, you know, you, if somebody says to you, says to you they need something, you say, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things for the body, what good is it? He says, you can tell them all the spiritual things you want, but if this person is suffering physically and you don't help them, what good is it? Well, at least I saved them for their, for their eternity. Yeah, but you had the ability to provide something for them now. Think about that. I've, I've shared the gospel with them, and now I can physically do something for them. How much is that going to influence their belief in the gospel? We need to do good works also, and that shows the glory of God. It also shows in how we love un conditionally you guys know this verse 1 Corinthians 13 love is patient and kind love does not envy or boast it is not arrogant or rude that reverts back to the first one about how we talk it does not insist on its own way it is not irritable or resentful it does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And all three of these are a reflection of what Jesus has done in our lives. Now, I I know there are some areas of my life that in those three things that, man, God's still got to work on it. You've heard me sing this before. He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. It took him just a week to make the moon and the stars, the sun and the earth and Jupiter and Mars. You know? God, God, God can make the whole world, all of creation in six days. I'm 55 years old and God is still working on me. Why? Why can't God just do it like that? Well, because he created us with free will and he created us as humans. And boy, we just fight him all the way. And I'm, I'm there too. <sighs> Now, just because love is patient, love is kind, does not mean we allow people to walk all over us. We hold people accountable for what they do and what they say and how they live and how they love. But we do it in loving, kind ways. And when we think somebody is doing something wrong, we address it with them lovingly, not accusatory, not condemning, listening more than talking. One day... As I said, the whole world is going to see the glory of the Lord, but it will not end well for everyone. Revelation 1, 7 says, Jesus says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. He's going to come. The sign of Christ is going to be in the clouds. He's going to come. They're going to see it. Nobody, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Oh, wait a minute. Those people are dead, aren't they? Yeah, they are. But they'll still see him. They'll know it's time. Even the dead will know. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. They're going to wail. The world is going to be in sorrow because they know the truth. That they've been told and they've decided to ignore. Isaiah is going to hear another voice in verses 6 through 8 of Isaiah 40. It says, a voice cries, says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? 
It says, all flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Isaiah is instructed to give a very strange message. He's basically saying that humans are unreliable. I don't know about you, but i got patches in my front yard. I have seeded it and I've seeded it and I've seeded it. It will not grow. It's unreliable. I, I get the seed that says 100%, you know, guaranteed to grow. Doesn't grow. But we're unreliable, but God is infallible. We're not. We have to be honest about this. Every thought I have is not correct. Everything I say is not right. Unless it's backed by Scripture, obviously. Hence why I said again last week that the only one we should trust in is Jesus Christ. Everyone else can and will probably fail us. Even in our good intentions, we are like the flowers of the field. We are inconsistent. We have our own struggles and we try to deal with the struggles of everyone else and we need to help each other. Not fix each other, help each other. We have good intentions. And even under ideal conditions, we might blossom. But when the reality of life hits us, sometimes we wither. Because, see, Christianity is not, our faith is not about what we do. It's about what God promises to do for us and in us. Our faith, Christianity, is is not fundamentally a challenge. It's not a challenge. It is an assurance. It is only God who qualifies us for our trust. God is the only one who qualifies for our trust. He is the only one we can trust in. There's no human power who can stop him. He is the only one who is truly reliable. All the rest of us are like grass, withering in the sun. And whilst many times the grass looks great, Oh, believe me, there are times my grass looks awesome in my front yard. It's going to wither. God's word and his will is the only thing that stands forever. And then Isaiah is told to spread the word. It says, go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice and strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God has come with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Meaning that he's, he's bringing his reward, but he's going to take care of the problems first. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with the young. If you cherish the hope you have in Christ, you have to spread the coming glory of God with enthusiasm. See, God doesn't work at arm's length. He doesn't keep everything. He's like the shepherd who picks up the sheep and carries it, the lamb. He doesn't only work through the church programs. He doesn't just work through Sunday morning. He doesn't just sit on his throne and hand down decrees. He comes. He brings his presence. And it's a joy to share that with people. 
It's what the world needs, even though it doesn't know it. We can no longer stay locked inside of our churches wearing the mask of Christianity or the mask of this world. We have to get out. We have to go outside. We must courageously share the good news of Christ person to person, heart to heart. And how do we do that? We do that by amplifying the the very joy that we have. We need to regain the joy we had at our salvation to help us share the gospel. Just a few additional applications here. If you haven't not done so, you need to come to Christ and you need to come to him now. The time is short. Trust him. God has provided the end of, for the end of the war and we can experience God's peace now as we wait for his return. If you are a follower of Christ, then, then drink in and feel the comfort of these verses that, that God has provided more than enough to cover your sins. And he is like a good shepherd leading you gently and wisely. Thirdly, I suggest you step up your time with God. It is the only way you're going to see the invisible God is to step up your time with him. It's the only way you're going to see him by faith, walking by faith. Pick up the scriptures. Spend time in prayer. Don't miss a single day where you're not in God's word. I send an email out every day with a verse and a prayer. Use it. If you're not on the list, let me know. You'll get it. Spend five minutes reading that, praying that. It's all set for you. Don't miss a single day without hearing God in his word. Live joyously in your salvation so those around you will see what you're living and want it for themselves. There's nothing worse than a grumpy Christian. Live in joy. And finally, boldly proclaim Christ to all who will listen. Let's pray. Thank you.